As I've considered that passage uh, over the past week and, and more as I've, I've read through it, this, this road to Emmaus story, one of the lines that amazes me from that passage is when it says that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I mean, wouldn't that just be incredible? Like a, an in-depth Bible study led by Jesus himself, right? I mean, that's amazing. That's incredible. Jesus does this with the two disciples on the way to Emmaus. And then Luke describes a very similar thing a little bit later in that same chapter with the rest of the disciples. So we don't have a whole lot of, of what all happened after the resurrection, all the different things that Jesus did with his disciples, but we at least know one thing that he did was explain to them how his life, death, and resurrection made sense of their scriptures and the law, the prophets, and the writings. Luke tells us that Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And I wonder, do any of you wish that Luke had given us a little more? Like, do, wouldn't it be great if he had told us the specific scriptures that Jesus had read to them and, and talked with them about? You know, if, if Luke had told us exactly how it was that, that all of this fit together, wouldn't that be amazing? Well, actually, Luke does do this. You see, uh, Luke wrote two volumes to his story. Volume one is what we call the book of Luke. It tells the story of Jesus' birth and life and ministry and death and resurrection. And volume two is what we call the book of Acts. The book of Acts, which continues this story with Jesus' ascension, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and then the life and ministry of the early church. You see, both Luke and Acts are by the same author. They're, they're volume one and two of the same story. And so here at the end of volume one, uh, what we've just dwelled in, Luke tells us that Jesus taught his disciples what all the scriptures said about him. And then throughout volume two, the book of Acts, Luke shows us those disciples sharing these teachings as they proclaim the resurrection. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some of these proclamations from the disciples in the book of Acts. As they look to the law, the prophets, and the writings to describe everything that has happened through Jesus. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is where we will be reading from together this morning. Acts chapter 2. We'll pick up in verse 14 in just a moment. Before we read, I'll quickly remind you of the setting uh, that this text takes place in. So after Jesus' resurrection, he spends several weeks with his disciples, teaching them all that the scriptures have said, declaring to them the kingdom of God. And then after 40 days, 40 days after the resurrection, he ascends into heaven, and he tells them 
to wait in Jerusalem. Wait in Jerusalem for the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they gathered together and they waited. And then 10 days later, something amazing happened. Right? They're gathered together, and then suddenly a great wind blows through the place where they're gathered. Something like tongues of fire appear above them and, and, and come down on each one of them, and they all begin speaking and proclaiming in a myriad of different languages to all the diversity of people who are there in Jerusalem. It's this multicultural city that is, is hosting the great feast of Passover that has just happened. And so they begin proclaiming in this myriad of languages to all the different people who are there. And some of these people are amazed at what they see and hear. But others just think that these disciples must be drunk. And they are babbling away a bunch of nonsense. And this brings us to verse 14, where Peter gets up and speaks. So let's read Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with the joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. 
Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. And we thank you for the celebration of resurrection. God, I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture together here this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this sermon that Peter preaches is often referred to as the first Christian sermon. So the first sermon ever preached. I remember preaching my first official sermon. Uh, it was when I was in college. I had the opportunity to present or to preach at this college worship service that was happening. Um, I was very excited, and overall, it went pretty well. However, it, uh, it admittedly suffered from say-it-all syndrome, um, which is a common thing for early Preachers. It's a syndrome where because you've never really gotten to preach before and you're not really sure if or when you'll be able to preach again, you have to say it all, right? Say it all syndrome is what it's called. The sermon was way too long, way too long. It took me about, it was like a 15-minute intro before I even got to the text. Um, and then, you know, I've walked through the text for another 20 minutes or so. Uh, and then after that, there were like three or four or five like application points that I gave to everyone, some of which actually had nothing to do with the text. I just thought were really interesting and neat. And then there was like a whole other conclusion where I went to a different text to finish. It was like an hour long, um, really bad case of say it all syndrome. Um, and some of you may say, I haven't gotten over that, and I apologize. But here in Peter's first sermon, he also has a bit of say-it-all syndrome, right? His passages are Joel, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110, right? He's flipping around quite a bit. He talks about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He talks about David's kingdom and this promise of his descendant. He talks about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the ascension, rule, and reign of Jesus. I mean, he really seems to say it all, although he was much more concise than I was in my first sermon. So here's what I want to do today and over the next few weeks as we look at other sermons and, and speeches within the book of Acts from the disciples, I want to first consider the scriptures that they look to 
as they proclaim the resurrection, right? Very likely, they received this teaching from Jesus. These are the texts that Jesus pointed to and said, this is about me. And they carried those teachings on and declared them. And Luke records these teachings for us in the book of Acts from the disciples. So I want to consider the scriptures that they are pointing to as they proclaim the resurrection. And I also want, as we read their sermons, their speeches, to hear them both as an exhortation to us, but also as an example for us. Right? An exhortation to us, how do their proclamations speak to us today? But also an example for us, how can we learn from them as people who are also called to proclaim resurrection in our lives? And so let's look at Peter's proclamation and the scriptures that he uses. Right Now, the impetus for Peter's sermon, uh, for his standing up and raising his voice, is this Holy Spirit arrival event that has happened and what everyone is saying about it. So Peter speaks up in order to tell them, this is what's happening, and this is what it means. So after dismissing the claims of drunkenness, right, it's only nine in the morning, clearly that's not what's going on, he begins his sermon in verse 16 with the words, this is that, this is that, right? And that's really the whole sermon in a nutshell, this is that. He's telling them what all of this means, right? This is that. The Holy Spirit event, this Holy Spirit event, is that which Joel had spoken of. This Jesus event is that which David had spoken of. This, all that you see going on, is that which God has promised us all along. This is that, right? You know what the scriptures say. You know the that. Well, this is that. That's the sermon. That, that's what he is saying. Uh, he's telling them all of this that you know is coming true. So Peter opens with this quote from Joel 2, Right? This is that which Joel had spoken of. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And immediately, by pointing to this passage, Peter is making sense of their experience. He's saying, this wind and fire and speech is that. Right? It's what Joel said would happen. Now, something important to notice is the phrase, in the last days, that he begins with. We don't have time to do a deep dive into this this morning. That would be a say-it-all syndrome problem. We're not going to do that today. But I do want you to hear this. Consistently, throughout the New Testament, this phrase, the last days, refers not to the future, but to the present. The last days refers not to the future, but to the present. The last days began when Jesus first proclaimed 
The kingdom of God has arrived. That was the beginning of the last days. They began when Jesus first came, and they will go up until the day that he comes again. We are currently in the last days, and we have been for 2,000 years. These are the last days. This is consistent through all of the New Testament. The last days is not some future time. The last days is now. When Peter proclaims in the last days, God says, I will pour out all my spirit on all the people, he's not saying this is going to happen someday later on. He's saying, guys, this is that, right? This is happening now. We're in the last days. This is that. We're in the last days. God is pouring out his spirit on all people. Look. So Peter begins by connecting this passage from Joel to this Holy Spirit event. But then he goes on to connect it to Jesus. In verses 22 through 24 of Peter's sermon, he summarizes the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus by paralleling it with what he had just quoted from Joel chapter 2. So if we just do a little looking back and forth, if you have the text in front of you, in verse 19, Joel says, I will show wonders in the heavens and signs on the earth. And then down in verse 22, Peter says, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by God by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you, right? Joel said, wonders and signs are coming. And Peter says, Jesus has done these wonders and signs. In verse 20, Joel says, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. And then in verse 23, Peter says, Jesus was handed over and put to death on the cross. Do you remember what happened while Jesus was on the cross? In Luke 23, it says that darkness came over the whole land. The sun stopped shining, right? The sun has been turned to darkness. Christ is on the cross. But then the Joel passage goes on to speak of the great and the glorious day of the Lord. And Peter goes on in verse 24 to say that God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Do you see how Peter is paralleling the passage from Joel and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? This is that. Right? It doesn't only connect to this Holy Spirit event. It connects to the whole life of Jesus that we have all just witnessed and seen. Now, something else that we don't have time to fully go into, but I want to point out, is how Peter describes the cross. In verse 23, he says, This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So here's a question. Was this God's plan, 
Or was it the act of wicked men who are opposed to God? According to Peter, the answer is yes. Yes, it's not an either or. Yet most people, as they theologically reflect on tragedies like the cross, make it an either or. Most people, uh, you know, say either everything is part of God's perfect predestined plan, right? Have you ever heard something like that in, in the wake of tragedy, right? Something terrible has happened and someone, oh, well, I'm sure it's part of God's plan. So that's one way. Either it's all part of God's perfect predestined plan or everything is just the result of wickedness, sin, the fallen world. Right? Most people theologically tend to go either or. Peter does not do that. Peter managed to hold these two things together. There's a mystery in this. It cannot be explained or described. But here's the thing. The cross is the result of wickedness and sin. Right? He says that. It was wicked men who put him to death and nailed him to the cross. And yet, it was also God who knew that this would happen. And and God was able to work through the tragedy of the cross and overcome that wickedness and sin that had brought it about. This is true of the cross, but it's also true of all the tragedies and pain that we experience in life. We must not wash over tragedies with some simple, empty theological platitude. Well, it's probably somehow God's plan. But we also must not let go of trusting that God can and does work redemption in all things. In all things. So for those who are in Christ, our destiny is the same as that of Jesus. Verse 24, to be raised from the dead, to be free from the agony of death, for it to be impossible for death to keep its hold on us. That is our destiny in Christ. We don't dismiss the pain that we experience, but we don't let go of the reality that God has done good things. Let us be a people who acknowledge the reality of sin and death around us while also trusting in the victory of God over all things. This is how Peter describes the cross and the resurrection. And so so next, Peter continues to proclaim the resurrection, and he moves from this Joel text to a David text in the Psalms. He quotes from Psalm 16, which says, You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. 
You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. So once again, Peter does a this is that, right? This, this is that. But, but first, before he does the this is that, he tells us what, what it's not. He tells us what Psalm 16 is not. See, Psalm 16 is not just a nice song that David sang once upon a time. And, it, and it's certainly not about David. In verse 29, Peter says, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. In other words, David did go to the realm of the dead, and his body did see decay. This psalm is not about him. It's about his descendant who would come to rule. In verses 31 to 32, he goes on to say, seeing what was to come, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that this Messiah would not be abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor would his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of it. He says, I imagine, you know, pointing to the others around him, the other disciples around him. We've all seen this. We're witnesses of it. See, Peter confidently proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one that David had spoken of. This is that. This is that which David had said. And by now, I'm sure people listening are probably intrigued. All right. All right. It's starting to make some sense. We're following. But there's just one hang-up. There's just one hold-up. If Jesus is this Messiah who you're talking about, the one to rule on David's throne, well, then where is he? Right? If Jesus is the Messiah, why hasn't he defeated the Romans who are here? Right? Why hasn't he established this kingdom that was promised? What's going on? Well, Peter anticipates this question. And really, this question is far too small. Jesus, the Messiah, is not to rule from David's throne in Jerusalem. Jesus, the Messiah, is to rule from God's throne in heaven. It's so much bigger than you ever thought, than you ever had imagined. This kingdom thing is not about Jerusalem and David alone. It is about God and the whole world. In verse 33, Peter declares this, that Jesus has been exalted to the throne at the right hand of God. He describes this with yet another passage, quoting Psalm 110. The Lord has said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And then he connects this all back to what they have just seen and the arrival of the Holy Spirit. He says, exalted to the right hand of God, Jesus has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. This Spirit outpouring is that. This is a sign that he is enthroned above. 
He rules. He is the Messiah. And so Peter concludes his sermon in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That's the resounding conclusion of this first sermon. So that's the sermon. That's the scriptures that Peter proclaims. Now I just want to take a brief moment to consider it all as an exhortation to us and an example for us. First, this exhortation to us. What is the message of Peter's sermon to us today? What are we to hear? You know, if we were in the crowd listening and Peter were preaching, what would we hear today? I think his closing line really is a great summary of the sermon. Jesus, who you crucified, is Lord and Messiah. That's the sermon. And that's what he says to us today. Now, of course, we were not there 2,000 years ago to hand Jesus over and have him crucified. But we have absolutely lived in ways that treat God as if he were better off dead. Remember, in verse 23, Peter said Jesus was put to death with the help of wicked people. And we have to admit that we have contributed our fair share of wickedness to the world. We have sinned against God. We have sinned against others. We have, we have sinned against our own selves. We have done things we should not have done. We have not done things that we should have done. We have sinned. And every one of us is called to repentance. This is part of Peter's sermon. This is part of Peter's message, and it's one that we, we must listen to and take to heart. But this is not the ultimate message of Peter's sermon. Many of us, that's the, that's the sermon we've heard. Repent. Get your act together. And if we stop there, we miss it. Peter keeps going. That, that's part of the sermon. That's part of the message. But the ultimate message that Peter proclaims is this. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord and Messiah. He is the one who rules and reigns. That's the message. Peter does not leave his audience in a lurch of guilt. Rather, he proclaims Jesus' resurrection, rule, and reign, and invites the audience to be a part of that kingdom, to live in that kingdom that he has established. Yes, we have sinned, but the real news is that Jesus reigns, that Jesus is Lord. That's the news. That's the gospel. Yes, we need to repent, but in the words of Jesus, we repent because 
the kingdom of God has arrived. That's what we repent for. So we can turn to this kingdom and say, there's so much more to life than I was living before. The kingdom. This is the message of Peter's sermon to us. We are called to repent of our sin, but more than that, we are called to participate in the kingdom of God. That's the exhortation to us today. Now, how is this sermon an example for us as those who are also called to proclaim resurrection? Well, this sermon, remember, he started because he saw what was going on. The Spirit was being poured out. And people were being moved and speaking. And he got up so he could tell the people, this is that. Right? This is God moving among us. This is that. I think the example for us is that we need to be on the lookout for moments when we see God around us, where we too can say, this is that. This is the kingdom of God. This is the activity of God here and now among us. Jesus said, consider the birds of the air. Consider the flowers of the field. Your Father feeds them and clothes them. Right? Every morning, Caitlin and I sit at the breakfast table and we look out the window and we see birds all over the place. We see new blossoms coming up every day. Have any of you seen those things recently? This is that. This is your Heavenly Father providing and caring for the world around you. This is that which Jesus said. There, there are times in my work, whenever I get to sit with people who have been through some kind of tragedy, and yet hear stories where in the midst of that, God is moving. God is at work. God is still blessing people even when dark things have happened. In the midst of tragedy, to hear, hear the words, but God is so merciful. This is that. Jesus said, behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. This is that. To be able to witness someone in the midst of tragedy and still hold on to faith, that's the kingdom of God at work among us. There are times in my own life, uh, whenever, I'll be really honest, I get up on Sunday morning and I don't really have a clue quite what I'm going to say. Maybe I have a clue, but maybe that's all I have. And, and yet, faithfully, God provides, right? And, and Jesus said, don't worry about what you will say. The Holy Spirit will speak for you. Right? So by the grace of God, every week when I get up here, this is that. Right? This is the grace of God providing. Right? Each of you have a moment like this too. In your life, 
in your work, in your relationships, that you can point to and say, this is that. This is the kingdom of God. This is God at work in my life among us. If you can see those moments, then we can become a people who proclaim resurrection, just like Peter did. May it be so. Amen.